Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from among its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that our love is lacking. And we pray that you would increase it. That you would give us a true affection for you and a true heart for one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, he says and asks the question that I was not wanting to particularly answer. It was the the question which I would rather just not get into. But he forces you to consider it. He asks, hey, if you were to go up and down the West Coast, you were to check out the churches up and down the West Coast, what would you say is the primary characteristics of some of these churches that you would go and you would visit. Uh, to which you say, well, you know, I, I think as I've gone and visited a few, here's, I, I've noticed some, well, some are so large. Uh, they, they, they are just large churches. And, and, and some of these large churches have various great things going on in them, healthy things that are good. And some of these other churches are, are essentially large churches like a country club where perhaps money flows like the Amazon River, where there's laser lights and big stages and big productions and everybody gets pumped up. The pastors, perhaps, in some of these cases are little more than used car salesmen. There's no substance to some of them. You'd say, but other churches, up and down the West Coast, they're so stuffy that when you go into them, oh sure, they drone on and on. They go through all the motions. They seem to check all the boxes, as it were, and they they, they really understand. They believe their Bibles, but as you're with them, they sort of dress and just act like they're at a funeral. Still other churches you would go, And you would say, they've become so culturally relevant that they really do not reform the culture at all. They're only reacting to the latest trends. If they had a banner in the church, it would just merely be virtue signaling. Letting everybody know where they stand on the latest hot topic issue of social media and the news. They would want you to know that they are on the progressively correct side of every twist and turn that culture has. Some churches... You would visit and you'd say, it's filled with scandal. It's filled with sexual immorality, the abuse of the vulnerable, the abuse of children. Sadly, that has been their legacy. So that they become a swear word in the mouth of their community. 
And still other churches, you would say, when I'm there, I sense these people are pressing into the gospel. I sense that these people are pressing into the truth of God's word, the good news. And some of these churches, they wonder if they're the small kid on the playground, if God is paying any attention to them at all. So question for you, as you've checked out the churches up and down the West Coast, would you say that my assessment generally of the land is true? Would you say that my assessment of the churches up and down the West Coast is, yeah, more or less what you will tend to see? I'm not talking about the, about the uh, amounts of these churches. I'm not saying that this is an even spectrum at all. But would you say it's generally true? To which you'd say, you know, I visited enough churches in Sandy or Gresham or Portland, or even you've been up to a church in Seattle or perhaps down in San Diego. You can say, yeah, that's pretty much it. I have to bring up the fact that I, friends, was not talking about churches in Oregon. I was not talking about churches in Washington. I wasn't talking about churches in California. I wasn't talking about churches on the West Coast of the United States. You say, well, yeah, but you were asking about the West Coast and you gave all these examples that match what we've seen here. And I say, friends, I was talking about the seven churches in the West Coast of Asia Minor. I was asking if you visited these churches, what you would see. And I think right there's the point when you say, wait a sec, time out. All these churches, what's rather amazing and striking, the scandals, the biblical beliefs, the, the unbiblical beliefs, the cultural relevance, the idolatry, all of these things that mark our modern churches are the exact same issues that marked these churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Their issues, friends, are our issues. And it all comes back to the view that I tried to bring up originally that these seven churches, though local churches for sure in Asia Minor in, in John's day, are representative of the complete church. And the reason I would suppose that the Lord is not having John write nine churches or five churches or 25 churches, but seven exactly, is because you're aware of the number seven representing completeness. And that here, Jesus wants to bring to mind that he is addressing the complete church. And for each church that is being addressed, there's a formula. First, there's an address to the angel of the church in whatever city, it's Ephesus or Pergamum or Thyatira example. Um, then we see a piece of the vision that we had of the resurrected Jesus from chapter one is actually pulled into stress, an aspect that relates to the churches. There's always uh, positive achievements that have been brought up. There's counsel that is brought up except for a couple of the churches and then a rebuke that is brought up except for a couple of the churches. But each one ends with a promise. Each one of these seven churches has a promise given to it at the end. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go through just, just in the order that it's given here. Further, before we dive in to the address, I want you to note that what is said to one is said to all. Uh, each time we read this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is interesting because John is writing to a particular church, Ephesus, and you'll write later speaking to Thyatira. But even as he's writing to one, everybody gets to listen in. It, it would be like if Jesus could write to a church in Sandy 
And, and he's writing to them and we up in Welch's are listening in to what Jesus says to them. So that whatever Jesus is warning them, we, we say together, oh, we, we, mean, we need to be careful of this as well. And they get to read what's written to us so that they get to say, oh, the issues that Church on the Mountain is having, we, we, must, we must be aware of those too. What is said to one is said to all. These seven letters draw us in to peer into what Jesus wants for the church. So here, the address is to Ephesus, same church that the book of Ephesians is written to. And the image that is given here right off the bat in verse one recalls for us the image of the son of man. He is walking in amongst the golden lampstands. Uh, This emphasizes his presence with the church. So recall that we saw in chapter one, we saw the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. And so this, the decoder ring was essentially the seven golden lampstands were representative of the seven churches. And Jesus is right there in amongst them. And then in his hand, he has gripped the seven stars, which depending upon how you take this could be the pastors of the church or a literal angel that's helping oversee and, and direct this church. Either way you take this, uh, you see what is emphasized here is that Jesus is sovereign and he's protecting them as he's in amongst them and has these churches in his hand. And then we see that this letter speaks of their high achievements. This is in verses two and three. I'll read these again to bring them to mind. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. I just hope that these two verses sit on you this morning, that you would say, this is a good thing that Jesus is commending them for. I think it's easy to brush as you're reading through chapters two and three, you say, eh, oh, this is what's good. Slide that out of the way. Let's get to where the issue is, where the problem is. And, and then you can push aside the good aspects that belong to this church. This church here, this church of Ephesus, this is no small thing. They're not filled with slackers. This church gets busy. Oh, the culture may have come and tried to bulldoze them over, tell them how to live their lives, but they stand firm. They preach the truth and nothing but. They toil. That's the word used. Your works and your toil and your patient endurance. This church is not lazy, waiting around for God to just do something while they sit on their haunches. No, they patiently work hard. In this church, they seem to be concerned with right doctrine. In this church, Every single member of this church has the ESV study Bible in their hands. If you were to go to their library, you would find John Piper, Jen Wilkin, J.I. Packer, Jonathan Edwards, Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur, Don Carson, and others. You say, oh, these people want to hear from the brightest and the best scholars of their day. When Benny Hinn would come to town, this church, they would go. But they wouldn't go, friends, to get a prayer cloth. They would go to riot and to drive him away. Because they knew that every TV preacher, almost every TV preacher, was a sham con artist. They weren't going to be duped just by anybody who came to town and said, I have a word from the Lord today. They say, if your word doesn't match with this word, you can just keep on walking. Recall, friends, this is Ephesus. This is the church that Paul 
Paul had spent two years with these brothers and sisters, holding hands arm in arm with them, teaching them gospel doctrine so that they wouldn't depart from it or leave it, that they would hold fast to it. And Timothy spent time there as well. In Acts chapter 20, Paul addresses the Ephesians and he says, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And what's remarkable is they heard those words from Paul way back in Acts. They heard the words that Paul spoke to them, warning them that someone, some would try and come in and disrupt with false teaching. In this church of Ephesus, they said, we won't stand for it. They received these words. They took them seriously to heart. On one hand, if what they were hearing didn't conform to the gospel, to what Paul taught them, then they would tell the speaker to be on their way. They wouldn't put up with it. But further, look at verse 6. There's another uh, uh, commendation here is that Jesus says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So for people to say, Jesus doesn't hate anything. He's just a lover who lovingly loves. Well, there are certain things that Jesus hates. He hates it when people with false teaching come in and try and ruin a church. He hates it when wolves would come in and try and devour his own people. He hates it and he won't stand for it. And neither would the Ephesians. They here did not like the work of the Nicolaitans. What what was the, the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, Two primary things we know. We don't know all of history in this regards, but we do know uh, from, from later we will see that they were involved with sexual immorality. They also were a church that was um, filled with, uh, or they were a group who was filled with materialism. So they, in, they imbibed uh, cultural ideas of what uh, was sexually okay. They abandoned God's good design for sex, but they also turned and worshipped things that were created rather than the creator. And so uh, the, the church of Ephesus here, they, they won't stand for it. They don't want anything to do with these things. And we have to say they've done really well. If this church, the church of Ephesus, was quizzed on the third greatest commandment, they would pass with flying colors. I'm not talking about the 10. I'm talking about greatest. And so if you just went and said, well, what's the fourth greatest commandment? Or what's the fifth? And you could say, oh, it must be this. They would consistently get each one nailed. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the 10th, the 15th, the 20th. But if you said, hold on, time out. Let's go back to the first and the second greatest commandment. They would not pass. They would not do well. They would have failed what is supposed to be primary in their life as Christians. It's, it's as if the, the, this idea of love was something that was in their hands at first, but then it sifted through their hands like sand. The need to love. Now, before we go into verse 4 and see this rebuke, I think it's important for us not to gloss over what this church is strong on. Again, Christ will rebuke them for something, but I just hope that you and I would not want to ignore what Christ commended them for. Doctrine and theology matter. And they matter because it actually delves into why you do everything else you do as a Christian. What you do comes out of what you believe. Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter. What you do speaks off of deep down what you believe is true and right. And so here they believe something that is true. 
And yet they're not letting the theology and the belief of this work itself out into their hearts and hands. So, if you don't really have a foundation for love or a worldview that explains love, then friend, I ask you to ask yourself, why do you love? Love only makes sense if what Jesus here said and what he did was true. And Jesus wants us to get on with truly the work, good work of loving one another and loving him. And so look at verse four with me and we see this rebuke. Verse four, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, first, note this word abandoned. It's kind of interesting because it's a strong word, right? This word abandoned is not like, well, you guys sort of just loved each other, but then life happened and you sort of just slowly drifted away from it. It's as if they got up and marched and left it altogether. They abandoned this love. And so we ask the highly theological question, which is, what's love got to do, got to do, got to do with it? It's an important question. The question is raised, what kind of love is it that they've abandoned? Love for God? Did did they leave love for God? Was that it? Or did they leave love for others? Did they no longer love their neighbors and themselves and the community? Well, let's just be honest. The text doesn't say. It doesn't say. It just says they lost the love that they had at first. The love that they had when they first believed the gospel certainly was a love for God and a love for others. How could it not be? I would propose that the love, friends, that they lost was love with a capital L. Can you really, just ask yourself, can you really love God and not love others? Well, scripture seems to show that these things are intertwined. I think of 1 John chapter 4, right? Where we read, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, well, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Further, let me propose to you, can you truly love others if you don't really have a love for God who created them? Well, maybe. Maybe you could, but I would, I would propose it's a, an incomplete love. What do I mean? Well, John, Jonathan Edwards, he, he mentions there are two types of love. He says there's two main types of love. One is a receptive love and the other is a sacrificial love. The first one, a receptive love, is called a love of complacency. In other words, I love ice cream. I love flowers. I love the sound of silence when my kids are sleeping. These are good God-given things and we should not spurn this love. But it's subservient to the second type of love. Jonathan Edwards says, the second type of love is what is most important. It is this idea of a love of benevolence. It's a sacrificial love. One way of simplifying this is to say that one type of love enjoys beauty. So hear this. One type of love says, ooh, I see beauty and I love this sort of beauty. The other type of love is a creating of beauty. The sacrificial love is a love that is creating beauty, is it not? You work in the garden, you toil, it's hard, it's sacrificial work, and it creates a beautiful thing. And then you turn to the receptive love and you look at the flowers and you enjoy the fruit and you say, ah, I really love this whole thing. We need both loves. And it's important. Uh, This type of love, this benevolent sacrificial love is often best seen in the child and parent relationship where a father or mother so loves their child that they give up their comfort 
to rescue them from whatever circumstances they find themselves in. So for example, a child loses their job. A parent shows up to pay the bills. A child is facing awful medical crisis and a parent comes in to take care of the needs. A child is going through a terrible disaster in their life and a father or mother swoop in with great cost to care for and see their child thrive and make it and it radically changes them. This, friends, is the type of love that God has for us and it radically changes us. Last week, Tim encouraged us with a sacrificial type of love that is loving and praying for your enemies. That too is a love of benevolence. It's a love that costs you something. Almost all other world religions tell us the type of love that God has for you is a receptive love. A complacent love. The love that God has for us is the kind of love that says, well, he just thinks we're charming and he loves us. Because he looks down at you and he says, ah, look at this beautiful person. I just love them because of who they are. Look at who they are. Or other world religions will tell us this. In order to be loved by God, you must make yourself better. You must, through your own actions, better yourselves until you're charming. Make, work hard on yourself until God would say, ah, here's one I finally love because they're so charming. And so we rehearse to ourselves. We say, here's why I'm a decent person. Uh, I, I, here's why I'm better than they are. This is why God must love me. Because at least, no matter how awful I can be, I'm not like them. And so we make ourselves charming so that then God will love us. Christianity says, no, no, you are in the gutter. Your righteousness, all the things that you think make yourself charming are filthy rags. Christianity says, all the stuff that you try and better yourself by puts you in the gutter. It's garbage. And yet, God scooped you up anyways and loves you. And when you awaken to the love, the sacrificial love that Jesus truly has for you, it is beautiful. And I mean fully beautiful. Uh, th- this is where we see Romans 8, uh, sorry, 5, 8, saying we don't deserve this love. John chapter 15 says there's no greater price to be paid Reaffirming that it is a sacrificial love. John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us it's an eternal love. Luke chapter 15 shows us that it's a love that he delights in. That he absolutely cannot wait to, to give out his love on the people who are not charming and don't deserve it. This is his love for us. Do you see why the view that all we need to do is be theologically on the correct side is not enough? I have to remind myself, it is possible to be right and to be wrong about how I am right. Ephesians, they lost the love for the community and for those who do not yet know Jesus. They no longer sing, I love you, Lord. They no longer sing, go tell it on the mountain. This church has gotten to a point where they just sing, all that matters is being right and winning the fight. And if we found ourselves ever in that place, what do you do? If you ever look inside and you go, I think at times I'm there. I just want to be right. And I want the others to know that they're wrong. And we've lost our love for God, for each other. Jesus doesn't leave us empty handed. He tells you exactly what to do. 
He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's three things, all with an R. Remember, repent, and return to what you used to do. I'm going to take each of these in turn. Remember, memory can be a powerful thing. Have you ever just remembered something and all of a sudden you just started laughing because you remembered all the things that accompanied that moment and you just started chuckling to yourself? Or when you remember something, it causes you to cry. You remember something with your parents when you're younger and it, and it brings this, this sorrowful grief. Or maybe you remember and you get angry. Friends, if you remember correctly, you can re-fall in love. You can go, oh yeah, that's why I married them. Oh yeah, that's why I wanted to be with them. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son who goes off, he leaves the father's wealth, he leaves the family farm, and he spends all the family's inheritance. And when he's there with the pigs, and he's seeing that the pigs are eating and they're hungry, what does he do? He remembers. He goes, hey, back home, my father's servants were fed pretty well. He remembers. The remembering aspect brings him back home so that he can then partake in the joy. Here with Ephesus, it is as if they had cherry-picked certain sections out of the book written to them, out of the book of Ephesians. It is as if they were concerned about certain parts with doctrine and concerned about moral living or pushing out those who had left the truth of the gospel. But perhaps they had cut out or ignored all the sections in the book of Ephesians on love. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love With which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of the glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. Or take chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Have you lost your first love? Have you lost the love that you had at first? For the Lord. For each other. Remember. Go back. Dwell on it. And then repent. What is it that could be causing this lack of love in you? What is it that distracts you from the good news? Is it the obsession with you being right? Is it the worldly distractions? Set them aside so that nothing will block you from loving God and loving his people. Cease continuing on like this. Confess to others. Let others in this church body know, you know what? I'm just struggling to want to love other people. Or I've been going through a patch where I'm just finding it difficult to want to have that love for God. And, and ask that they would pray with you and you could pray with them about this. And so we remember, we repent, and we return. Do what you did. Not just the good works, because remember, this is what they were commended for. Here, it's the work of good love that they were lacking. Uh, where the sacrificial love leads us to respond differently. Friends, think about a marriage counselor. 
Uh, what would they tell a husband or a wife uh, to return to when they used to have this love in between them? You know, if the, if the counselor said to the husband or wife, what is it you used to do, you know, to express that love and work out that love? And she says, well, you know, um, or he says, I used to buy her flowers. I, I used to take her out on a date. I, I used to actually hang up my towel. She says, well, I used to cheer for his football team. I hate football, but I used to cheer for his favorite football team. I, I used to make him delicious dinners. Well, I, I used to actually shave my legs. And you, you think just like a good marriage needs to return to the things to increase the love amongst one another. Um, what did you used to do when you first had the love for Jesus Christ? Do you remember back in your mind when you first came to those moments of realizing, I know I'm not sure about everything, but I know this is true. I can't say I understand it all, but I know in my heart of hearts, this is true. What did you do in those moments? You say, well, I used to get up early. I used to get up earlier than I do now when I would read the Psalms before going to work. Or I used to talk to the Lord throughout the day and just say, God, I'm struggling here. Help me with this. Or I would meet weekly with that fellow Christian or that group of Christians to help remind me, why is it even that I am a Christian? I used to rejoice in the goodness of God and my forgiven state. And I used to rejoice so much I would share it even though it costs me with my coworkers, with my family or my, my friends. And so we need to remember. We need to repent. We need to return to what we did at first. And if not, friends, there's a warning for us at the second half of verse 5 where he says, uh, look, if, if, if you don't, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this is where I have to warn us, church on the mountain, if we stop loving each other, if we stop loving Jesus, Jesus says, and he promises, he will close the front doors. This building will become just another community hall, a place where people come to get married. If we stop loving one another and loving Jesus. It's that crucial. The only churches he threatens to shut down have the issue of a lack of love. You know, every song that ends with a repeated refrain, it's interesting because those songs, as they repeat the same refrain over and over and over, they're really trying to drive home that single point. Maybe it's just a a single line. I I think of um, only a holy God. So you, you have all these verses, but then at the end of each line, it's, the answer to the questions are only a holy God. Um, to, to which we, we, we say, oh, okay, I'm starting to understand. For all the questions that are asked, you're not to miss that it's not just a God, not just a random God. Who could do all these things? Only a holy God. That's the repeated refrain. It drives home the point. And so what we get here in chapters two and three is a repeated refrain too. It says it over and over. What he says to one He says to all, and then we get the yet to the one, yet to the one. Note this. Uh, So uh, it's good as Christ addresses the entire church that the reward will be even for the one. 
you know, so that if, even if this entire church, even if everybody in here says, you know what, this whole love thing's overrated, I'm just going to be selfish and I'm going to focus on myself and I'm going to focus on all the ways that I can have that receptive love and I'm not going to have any sacrificial love for anybody else or for Jesus. Even if everybody else in here does that, but you, friend, you hang on. Jesus says, I'm saying it to everybody, but there's a promise for the one person here who remains in that love. There will be a reward for you who say, it doesn't matter what the rest do. I will repent and return to God with this love. And then we see the reward. Look at verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to the eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, paradise. Tree of life. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? You don't have to be around too long to remember and recall Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, where we see this garden, this paradiso, this, uh, this paradise in which there is this tree that grows up in the middle of it, in which Adam and Eve are told, you can, you can eat whatever, just don't eat of the one tree, but eat of the tree of life. And so we, we remember this. And then what we see here is this paradise this Eden-like place being described where we see a tree of life. Now, I have to tell you, I've been to paradise. Um, when I was at, in paradise, the, the grass there is lush. The water there is flowing. It's some of the tastiest water that we have in Oregon. Um, when I've been to paradise, the sky there seems bluer. Um, the flowers that, there, they bloom in this extremely bright red and deep blues and purples, and the yellow is incredible. Um, the air has a sweetness to it. The view all around is incredibly breathtaking. I've been to paradise. I don't know if you've been there. Some of you have been there. It's just right up on Mount Hood here. There's a little park. You hike in six miles from Timberline Lodge, and you arrive at a place that's called paradise. I totally get it. If I was there, and all of a sudden Jesus comes and lands on the top of Mount Hood, I'd say, here it is. This is what I've been reading about. I have been waiting. Here it is. This is amazing. But the issue is, if you're there in paradise or even on the north face of Mount Hood, there's a park called Eden. You go, you, you see why these places are named this. But the problem is they're incredibly beautiful, but incredibly dangerous. If you remain there, it doesn't matter if Jesus lands on the top of the mountain or not. After you've eaten your stale peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it doesn't take long before you get hungry. There's no tree of life there in paradise. In fact, there's hardly any trees there at all. It's kind of barren. And we need something that will sustain us. We need something that will feed us. We need something that will give us true life. And the promise is not in Eden, not in paradise, but in the real Eden. There's a promise there that there is a tree, a tree which is hearkened back to in the garden. It is a living tree that provides the very fruit that you need. What is that fruit? Well, I'm not, I can't speculate on exactly what this will look like or what exactly it'll be like, but let me just highlight something for you. In the New Testament, there are two types of trees. There are dendron trees. In other words, the word that we get our rhododendron right out here from. It's, that's where that comes from is dendron. But then there's another type of tree called zulon. And everywhere you see zulon, it's in reference to a life-giving tree. 
Uh, it's interesting because Zulon's used over and over here in the book of Revelation as it speaks towards this tree of life, this life-giving tree. But don't miss this. The other spots where it's actually translated in our English Bibles as tree. I want to read a few of these and see if you catch what kind of tree this is. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. How about Acts chapter 10, verse 39? We are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Last one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you get the point? Do you get the point? Does this mean that the tree of life in heaven is the cross of Christ? Well, I don't know that I'm overly confident in making that sort of leap. Here's where I am overly confident. That tree, the life-giving tree of the cross, if you believe in this, your hope is in this, that is what will grant you access to this tree of life that we read here in Revelation chapter 2. And what we see there is the one who overcomes, Nikao, that's where we get Nike from. The one who overcomes and conquers, he will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Would you pray with me? Father, I think of the Samaritan woman who, upon realizing that Jesus was going to bring this water of life, says, sir, give us this water always. Um, We think of uh, the tree of life and we, we ask, Lord, would you give us this tree of life always? Lord, in the ways that we struggle to love, would you increase our love? Would you let us see the fruitfulness of that growing? Lord, would you enable us to to love you as you would have us love you? Would you enable us with sacrificial ways to love each other, even when it's challenging, and it is? Would you, by your spirit, give us an ability to truly care for one another, to truly love one another? We ask and we need in your spirit, by your spirit's power, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.